Hello, welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for many years. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their lives. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Greg Wise. Greg is an actor and producer. Recently, he played Lord Mountbatten in The Crown and he also put in a memorable performance as John Willoughby in the 1995 film version of Sense and Sensibility. Greg lives in London with his wife, the actress, Emma Thompson, and they've got two children. Greg Wise, welcome to On the Marikiri Couch. Thank you very much. Going to start straight away mm-hmm. by asking you who you might want to talk about today, you might want to tell us about. So thinking about a personal experience you've had and a personal loss and death. Um, my sister, okay, uh, who died in September 2016 and was beautifully looked after by Marie Curie up in Hampstead uh, and the wild and wonderful Adrian Tuckman, who runs the place, along with Faye Gishen. Um, my sister got breast cancer in 2013, went through all the chemo and the radio and uh, it allegedly went away, but I don't think it ever did. And came back as bone cancer, from which you don't recover. Um, and towards the final months of her life, when she was getting properly ill, uh, she didn't really want anyone around, apart from her brother. Uh, and we'd been very fortunate to have had a very close relationship, both born and brought up in the northeast. I don't know where you're from. Um, and she uh, was a woman of a certain age with a cat, without a partner. Um, and so when the chips are down, she called on the man in her life, the capable one, uh, that was me. And I was fortunate enough to be self-employed and to have paid the mortgage and have a very understanding family and I was able to drop everything. And for the last three months of my sister's life, I lived with her in her flat and was her 24-7 carer. And I think one of the things that is useful for us to talk about in situations like this um, is what a terminal illness brings along with it. Mm. Not just the illness, but the very deep psychological implications of being ill and the shame of being ill and the fact that it's very easy and a lot of people use the trappings of what they have in their lives and the jobs they do and the cars they drive and the clothes they wear and the shoes they have and the holidays they take and all of these things to give themselves shape and purpose and a, and a, a concrete stability within the framework of a society. And of course, proper illness takes all of that away from you. 
And I think a great deal of what my sis was going through alongside the, the weight of the illness and the weight of the treatment of the illness, because this is another thing we have to talk about, was the shame of it all, because she had been a very capable woman. She had been a senior vice president in a big organization, a big film company. Mm. And now she was unable to go to the toilet on her own. Um, and she, of course, had an extraordinary group of friends around her, but didn't want to either burden them with her burden or wasn't capable emotionally of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And bless her, she was able and capable to have her brother do that. Um, so we were pretty much the two of us alone for three months, the last three months of her life. And on a, a, a Thursday, I'd do the meds inventory and work out all the banging opiates we'd need for the next week at the um, Oxynorms and Oxycontins, which I know have had a bit of a bad press recently, but they do work very well if you want to be knocked unconscious. Um, uh, and I'd phone or email uh, your lot up at Marie Curie, cycle up the next day, get someone to hold a fort at my sister's for an hour or two, um, pick up the meds, go to the only pharmacy that was allowed to prescribe these things because they're so dangerous, um, and then cycle back home. Uh, so we had, we had an extraordinary time the two of us together. And the thing that I am probably uh, wanting to, to, to explore and explain as much as I can to people who haven't gone through this is the amazing privilege of being able to help and, and look after and tend someone. Uh, that privilege totally balanced by the trauma mm. of it all because it is utterly traumatic because there's nothing you can do uh, apart from just try minute to minute to solve a problem of pain, hydration, feeding, exercise. Earlier on, how do we get her into a taxi to get her to uh, hospital for whatever procedure she was having at the time. Um, but it is an incredible privilege being able to do that mm. um, and do that for someone you love. Uh, I did it only for three months and it nearly killed me. Really, it nearly killed me. Mm. Emotionally and, and physically. Um, so people who are doing that day in, day out for years are the most extraordinary folk around. I know, I think we have seven million carers in this country. Mm. There's one in ten of us in some ways uh, working as a, acting as a carer to some, yeah. someone within their family. And a lot of the time it's kids missing school because they're looking after a mum or a, sometimes a grandparent. 
Just going back, Greg, to that decision that you made to move in with your sister, mm-hmm. of course, not knowing for how long yeah. that was going to be. Mm-hmm. What kind of conversations happened around that time with your family, with her? It was less of a conversation with her because I'd already started to gently stay the night once in a while. Um, and it was very apparent that she required someone there all the time. Um, I couldn't not have done it. It was that simple. Um, at the same time, I needed to have my wife and my daughter their permission because the husband, the father, was extricating himself from the family for, as you say, no one knew how long. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, the, the, the prognosis of bone cancer is... Um, between, I think, a year and 18 months from when you've um, originally been diagnosed with it. Uh, and my sis died pretty much within, absolutely within that time frame. Um, so we knew it wasn't going to be five, ten years. Um, but again, I need to make it very clear that, that, that my circumstances are very much out of the ordinary. My sister wrote a blog originally when she was diagnosed, first time with the cancer uh, and then let it go when she was in remission and then took it up again just to let all her friends and uh, the rest of the extended family know what was going on and when she became too ill to carry it on I took it over and um, and after she died I was approached by some publishers and we published it as a as a book so I've been going around doing readings and various book festivals and a lot of talks um, and, of course, I think I would assume that most people would be desperate to help a member of their family, but most people can't because most people have a nine-to-five job and are living a long way away from the person that they would want to care for. Uh, I was very lucky. My sister lived in our street, so she was just, just down the road. Um, the rest of my family were away at that time because it was over a summer. And I, obviously I couldn't have done it if either my wife or my daughter vehemently opposed it. But of course they didn't because my sister was absolutely inherent part of the family. And family looks after family. Was your sister talking about dying? My sister never talked about dying. My sister was constantly in denial. Um... She, she she was extraordinary, the the nature of denial. Uh, I think when she was in the treatment for her first cancer, for her breast cancer, and she sat down with the therapist there, and, and uh, I think at the end of the session, the therapist said, well, the reason you're doing so well is because you're utterly in denial. And that's not necessarily a bad thing mm. either. Um, we, we slightly clashed uh, on the odd time because... I, from my my boy makeup, need to understand how things work. I need to be forensic about stuff. I need to read, and really try and understand the nature of things. I'm a trained architect. It's all about you know how how does this look, mm. how is this built, how does this stand up. So I of course read the Atul Gawande being mortal book, and I read all sorts of stuff. And uh, and my sister wasn't wasn't dying properly. 
she wasn't doing it right because she should, we should have been sitting and talking and making lists and, and working out um, goals, hopes, fears, all of the, the things that um, I think Gawande talks about. Um, and I think the last time we had a visit from one of the palliative team, Dr. Phil, who explained very gently where my sister was uh, in the in the journey of this disease, and she listened, and she took everything in, and she said, "Thank you very much. I want a second opinion." The reason she wasn't able to go to the toilet wasn't the fact that she was unable to stand and walk because of all the tumours on the bones in her legs. It was because her brother hadn't done enough physiotherapy with her. And the goal now was to be able to get up and go to the toilet. And it didn't matter what Dr. Phil said about that she would never do that again. She wanted a second opinion. Mm. Um, there is something to be said about denial. Mm. Um, and I think it's very important that if someone doesn't want to talk, you don't force them mm. to talk. The very, very occasional moment when I try to raise anything pertinent and large, the metaphorical hand came up from my sister. Okay. Just stop, enough. Um, and we have to, as carers, as people around the person, understand that. One of my very close friends is a vicar. We were at drama school together and he, he, he didn't didn't want to keep acting, so went off and became a vicar. Um, and he told me a wonderful story um, about throwing shit outwards, that the person who is the sufferer, the person who's ill, is the centre of the circle. And immediately around them, the first circle, are the close family. And then there's another circle around the close family, which is the more distant family and friends. And then outside that are friends that you maybe don't see that often and then there's acquaintances and then the wider world. So there's all these circles emanating from the, the person themselves at the centre. You are allowed to throw shit outwards, but you can't throw shit inwards. Friends can't throw shit in at the family. Family can't throw shit in at the person. But of course we're all human and sometimes we do. And sometimes we get so frustrated that we, we don't mean to, but we have a little snap. Um, but my sister would never countenance where she was. And I think that, you know, using the circles, you were the circle around her for mm. a period of time, weren't you? Because the others were there, but not because yeah. she wasn't communicating yeah. with yeah. them or letting them in. So where were you throwing yours? I wasn't. That right. was my problem. The blog is very interesting because my sister started this just to try not having to spend all day fielding emails and phone calls and Facebooks and blah, and just say, look, this is what's going on. An update. An update. And then it came back from the various folk reading it. My God, you're a, you're a good writer. You're very funny. Who knew she was so funny? So she'd, she'd expand the thoughts 
know, where does chemotherapy come from? The yew tree. Do you know it's a Middle Ages? It was a poison. And, you know, really, she wrote wonderfully. And when she became too ill and I took over, I just wanted it to be as she had started it, as a sort of defence mechanism. Don't worry, everyone. This is, this is what's happening. This is where we are. I'll let you know if anything changes. Uh, and it was all very terse and very, you know, Claire had a bowl of soup and some ice cream and we sat in the garden. That was one of the postings. And then because I was spending all day on my own with her and you, of course, start, the brain starts spinning and you start thinking about life and death and mortality and, and other things that I started to write little bit more, a little bit more. It was always real-time writing at the end of the day when I'd given her her final meds and made sure she was comfortable and had all that hydration and the various pills that you might need over the night. Um, and I'd just sit down and bang this off and send it out. And as she got worse, I started to protect the people I was writing to. Now, I didn't know, really, who I was writing to. Uh, when she wrote the original blog, but just before she stopped, when she was in remission, there was something like oh, 100,000 hits on it. People all over the world were leaving messages. Yeah, people we didn't know. I don't know how they find these things, but they find these things. And, and I thought, I have to protect the family and the friends, at least, from where we actually are. And then I thought, who am I to protect? And isn't it better if everyone knows where we are, what's going on? So I started to become very clear. And the most grumpy posting I did, the grumpiest I was with my sister when I was just so frustrated with her uh, because she wasn't doing it right. And, ah, and I was just tired and, and, and completely wasted with this was the last post before she died. Um, and you are allowed to get angry. And I was, I think that was the one moment that I threw shit outwards, but I threw shit into the ether. It wasn't directed uh, mm. at anyone in particular. But you realise, I realised, that an awful lot that a terminal illness brings with it. An awful lot of that is dealing with other people's neurosis. Oddly, dealing with my sister was the sort of simplest part of it all. Because, of course, people get weird with proper illness. Um, people get weird with bereavement later on. It's the same, it comes from the same place. Because we are scared of our we're scared of illness, we, we have issues with our own mortality, and we're not at all connected to it, so we don't know the words to use when confronted with it. Not just the illness, but confronted with someone grieving. <laughs> we don't know what to say. And I know, I've, I've been there, I've, I've got to write the condolences letter, oh God, oh, oh God, he's walking down the street, and I know his mum, whoever, is just, died, what, what do I say, what do I say, God. So I was getting that a great deal from, from, from a lot of her friends, just 
just white knuckle neurosis, which was one of the reasons within the blog I would <laughs> I wouldn't be telling the truth because I didn't want to be bombarded by by other people's shit. And you feel it as well. I yeah. mean, it can fill a room very yeah. quickly, can't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and and proper proper illness brings proper neurosis from other people with it. It really does. Mm. Um, uh, which is why things like this are so important, mm. because we have to be able to talk. We have to be able to talk about where we have been. We have to be able to talk about what it looks like. Um, and and to try and bring it out into the sunlight. I think death is still very much hidden in a corner. And maybe the way we've done it, and I think it's only recently we've sort of hidden it. It's not that long ago that death happened in the house. Mm -hmm. Your granny lived with you, and she died upstairs, mm -hmm. and then was brought out feet first down the stairs, possibly by the family. Um, that we were all part of the cycle of birth and death. Um, the local carpenter made the coffin. Yeah, yeah. Kind of everybody was chipping in. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, that's, that's, that's one of the gags I'm going to leave behind in my will. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my son and daughter make my coffin. That'll really freak them out. <laughs> and then I'll say, after two days... Here's the new bit of the will. I've already made it. It's in the workshop just behind there. Don't worry. Because they would make the shoddiest coffin possible. But I would love, just for a couple of days, for them to have a go at making Dad's coffin. I think that'd be very funny. <laughs> that'd be great. You can get them now where you can paint your own. Yeah. 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 There was um, a, a festival of death and dying in the South Bank a couple of years ago. I went to go and hear some, um, some, some talks down there. And, and in the foyer, it was filled, filled with plywood coffins and, and paint everywhere. And there were kids, there were kids, there were kids doing little, little brilliant daisies on the side of a coffin and rainbows and, and all of that. Uh, my sister left this world in a disco glitter ball coffin. Did she? Yeah, because she was a big disco, 80s disco queen. So I'm guessing she hadn't spoken about her funeral at she all. She hadn't spoken about yeah. nothing. So no. you, you, you all had to make those decisions? Um, because she was in denial about everything. Uh, and she had a group of very wonderful friends, girl, all girlfriends, four of them, which we call the A-team. And until she got very ill, the A-team were very much around and helping. And, and even over the three months I was there, um, they would come every once in a while and have a little spa day and you know, try and wash her and because I'd take her into the shower and shower her a couple of times and when she became too weak for that we were doing bed baths and everything else. And um but the eighteen girls, uh our son who unfortunately was in Vietnam working at the time and couldn't couldn't come back. Then my wife and, and our daughter, amongst us all, we designed the funeral. Um, and for a gag, I was up at the funeral directors looking at the brochures of coffins. I said, well, she's not, a, she's not an oak coffin with a brass handles kind of girl. Mm. Have you got any? We've got, we haven't got this, this, whoever it was, put this thing together. And I was flicking through this extraordinary magazine 
you can have a Guinness coffee and you can have an Arsenal, you can have a Spitfire, you can have, you, know, you can cover it in photographs, whatever you want. And this glitter ball coffin appeared and I went, wow, that's, that's rather wild. And for a gag, I sent out to the seven folk uh, in the family and the 18 girls saying, well, this is a bit of a bit of a gag, but what do you think? And everyone went, perfect. And we worked out that uh, there'd be hundreds of people at a funeral and I couldn't cope with it. So I just said, look, why don't we just have it, just the seven of us? Um, and four of the girls carried her in to, uh, um, isn't it amazing how we forget? Was it I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor? Anyway, one of those. Uh, I think it was the Bee Gees. Um, and I asked everyone via the, the blog if they wanted to send us a little note and I'll read it out. Um, and we all just stood around the coffin and, and I read all the stuff and put the big ream of paper on the coffin and I left and I talked and I left the shorts that I had worn solidly for three months that could stand up on their own now on the coffin to be burnt with her and everyone brought something, a little offering. And we were in a crematorium and my, my wife had been with my sister to a, um, an Ayurvedic health place out in India earlier in the year she died. So my wife put a joystick on, lit a candle, and the place went crazy. You can't have naked flames in a crematorium. Isn't that great? That's great. Uh, um, but that was, uh, that was the perfect send-off, just seven of us yeah. there. Um, and then we had a banging great party on her birthday, what would have been her 52nd birthday. And we had a couple of hundred folk giving it large to disco music all night, two months after she died. So we did have a proper celebration with a, with a big book. Uh, that I made everyone write something in, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to have. Marie Curie want to change the way the UK talks about death and dying. We believe an open conversation with loved ones now can make life better at the end. For more information on how to start the conversation and free tools and resources to help, visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash talkabout. Marie Curie. For life to the last. Can you talk about your grief and your bereavement and how things were after all of that? Yeah, grief. Grief's a wild thing, isn't it? It's really interesting. It's also. I was aware when I was with her in the last months to try and not to pre grieve. which sounds odd, but when the person that you know and love, even though they're still alive, are not really there, mm. um, bone cancer's really cruel. It's really horrible. My sister had an extraordinary brain but never really any relationship with her body. And of course, people don't change when they're dying. I think they just become more of who they were, in a way. And my sister's body utterly disintegrated. Utterly, utterly, utterly. I mean, it, the, the wasting was 
mesmeric and the you know place of the pain she was in uh but the brain she had lesions in her brain as well which meant that sometimes she wasn't quite with it but um when she was unbelievably focused and we were able to gag have gags together probably a couple of days before she died i mean really oh nice um but the weight of the disease and the weight of the medication, if you're on this oxy, norm oxycontin, mm. uh, other stuff called Ephentora, which is wild uh, painkiller, you're asleep most of the time. Um, so she'd probably only have an hour or so per day of actually being sentient. So the person's kind of gone and she doesn't look like her anymore. And you get little flashes of her coming. And it's those moments which absolutely colour the day. Hmm. Uh, the tiny, tiny, tiny little gems in an otherwise bleak landscape. Hmm. These are the moments that you just hold on to and give you such joy. And that kept you going. Yeah, and that keeps you going. That kept me going. Um, but, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, how much longer can this go on? And yet trying to maintain uh, what I call the three Cs, being calm, capable, and consistent which I think was what I found was most essential mm -hmm. for me to be. Um, and then she died. And a large part of me was relieved. Then you have to not give yourself a hard time for being relieved. And to understand as well that the amount of grief you feel equals the amount of love you felt. The universe is balanced. It has to be like this. And grief uh, is like a vomit. It's extraordinary. Um, uh, I would find myself absolutely fine and clear and and feeling feeling calm and and suddenly just like the vomit this thing will just rise up through you very unexpectedly you know, by the frozen veg section in the supermarket mm. you know, it doesn't have to be triggered by a piece of music or a smell or a vision or whatever, it can just come. And, uh, and one of the things I think that I've found and I try and talk to people about now is don't judge it and don't get in the way. Uh, and again, it's something that we have to be better at in this society. There is no statutory leave for bereaved people. There's a suggestion on one of the pages of a government website. Two days. Two days. 
you'll be over it in two days. I think, I think grief lasts forever. But as with heartbreaks that we've felt over the years, when lovers have thrown us out, and we think we're never, ever not going to be heartbroken and, and weeping up against a toilet wall in a nightclub, uh, these things find a place within you but they find a place. It's like, it's like sediments. We are, we are sedimentary beings. We are the products of all of our joys and our woes and our successes and our failures. And, and everything is of equal importance and equal weight within this sedimentation that makes us who we are inherently individual. And that grief will always colour who I am, that gives me my shape. There is, a, there, is a, there is a hole within me that was my sis, who I'd never known life without, who I'd spent every Christmas with, who I'd been on holidays with into my 30s. Mm. Um, uh, and the jagged nature of the hole is being tempered slightly now by the winds of time and other things. It's not quite as uh, pronounced, but it will always be there. And you learn to live with the new shape. Yeah, yeah, because we're constantly changing shape, mm. aren't we? Mm. You know, I took a great chunk out of the end of my nose a couple of years ago. Uh, th this is part of my shape. Um, uh, uh, hair's falling out, there's a part of my shape. You know, you're putting weight on or taking weight off or whatever. You know, we are constantly morphing with the things that happen to us. Mm. I want to, um, if it's okay with you, to talk about mortality and being faced with mortality when you're caring for somebody or watching somebody else die. Do you think about your own death? Uh, yeah. I mean, I kind of think I did before, really. Right. I was, again, fortunate enough to have been able to be with my mum for the last two or three months of her life. And she lived in York, so I had to spend a lot of time living up in the house I was brought up in from when I was nine or ten, where she still lived. And I was with her when she died. Oddly, I spent about the last six weeks of my dad's life with him. Uh, I was making a television program in the northeast and a big chunk of the filming happened to be about 15 miles from where my dad lived so I stayed with him and when I wasn't filming we just hung out together and he was already uh, ill at that point and we'd worked out that he would have to move and we'd found him a fantastic place where he could have his own apartment within a, a, a system oh, nice. uh, and he was a professor he was he was very very clear about how things should be done. So I'd be there and he'd say, right, that goes to the, to the tip. That goes to the charity shop. Don't throw that out. He said, um, you should give that to him and give that to her and keep that. And so really, really, really well planned. And he went to stay with his partner because he couldn't quite face moving into the apartment that we'd sorted out for him. So that was all fine. I was exhausted. So um, it was half term. Uh, and my wife and daughter and I flew to Egypt, and literally as soon as the wheels touched the tarmac, he died. Because uh, he was like that. But that was the thing, people, people die how they've lived. He was a professor, he was very organised, very clear. His death was very organised and clear. 
my mum was a, a, a fiery um, Hungarian extraction. So she died enraged. My sister lived basically in denial. She died in denial. Um, I had always thought that when I get the news that I'm terminal, that I would take myself up into the hills with a bottle of whiskey. Uh, and I'm not going to do that now because it's not fair to those I've left behind. Because as traumatic as it is, as we were talking about at the very start, it's a privilege. And it's part of what makes a family and it's part of the love that you feel for those you want to be part of that time. I think I would want to be able to say this is enough. Um, I would want those I love to be able to care for me to a point. But maybe that's just me wimping out that the, the really dark and horrible moments with my sister, I would not give up hmm. now. Mm. And I wouldn't then. So why should I not have my family go through that with me? Uh, it's tricky, isn't it? I like that, though. I like that thought of offering the family the option yeah. of it as yeah. well. I've yeah. kind of not really thought about it in that way. but Because, of course, not everybody wants to be around. No. Not everybody can be. No, 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 that's the thing. But I think... To, to sort of offer the opportunity. Will you have the disco glitter ball coffin? <laughs> I want to be uh, I want to be sent sent out uh, like the Vikings. All right. Uh, I've I've made a lot of wooden things in my life. Uh, I've sculpted a lot, and I I've got a lathe, and I've made a stupid number of bowls and candlesticks and platters and all sorts of stuff. One of the great um, burdens of being uh, a, a child of, of artists, and both sides of my family, both my mum's side and my dad's side, uh, uh, fine artists and sculptors, God, we've got a lot of stuff, and you can't give it away. You can't sell it. Ah. Oh. So I've, I've said, everyone's allowed one thing. The rest of the stuff, stick it on a boat, stick me on top of it, and set fire to the lot of it. Don't think we're allowed to do that here, though, are we? <laughs> Don't make so. Don't Health and bad. safety. Yeah. Health and safety gone mad. Uh, but I think I think that's the way I'd like to. But it sounds like you've had those conversations yeah, with yeah. your family. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, talk yeah. about, and I think that's a kind of, you know, one of the important messages for for us to talk about. And have them when them you're well. Of, yeah. That's the point. That's the point. Be able to talk about it over the Sunday lunch table. I bang on a lot now. Uh, are you going to talk to Catherine Mannix? Do you know who that is? I'd love to talk to Catherine Mannix. I do know who it is, right. yeah. She's written this fantastic book called With the End in Mind. Mm. Have you read it? No. Give it a read. It's fantastic. In that, she says, uh, there are two days in our lives that are under 24 hours. The day we were born and the day we die. Isn't that great? Yeah. Now, the amount of time we spend with day one and nothing about the other day uh, and I'm trying all the time 
to say, let's use the same amount of energy and commitment in looking at the end as we do at the beginning. Because I can't see how the end is not a more important day. Mm-hmm. And plan for it. And plan for it. All of the All planning. of the classes you have in this, and, the, and the statutory leave and all mm-hmm. of this that goes on. We have to be better at the second because it colours everything how someone dies. Mm. It colours our shape as a family, as a friendship, as what, and of course the person going through it. Uh, the fact that, I don't know the percentages, but obviously 70% of people want to die at home and 70% of people die in hospitals, that's not right. Um, I know what they're trying to do, uh, oddly inverted with childbirth you know there was this big thing a few years ago don't have kids in hospitals have kids at home and then that went catastrophically badly wrong because they didn't have enough midwives and so then i say actually have a kid in a hospital but don't die in a hospital Hmm. but there's no money in the system too i know i saved the nhs a lot of money by not institutionalizing my sister uh and she died in a space that she loved and she died with her brother and her cat and all her stuff around her. Um, and all we need to keep saying to ourselves is, how would I want my last months, weeks, days, hours? We have to bring it back to what would I want. Hmm. Um, but within that, there has to be a setup that will allow family friends, whoever, to be able to be part of your death. Uh, As there is for new mothers and fathers to be able to be new mothers and fathers, can we not work something out? The birth doulas, now there's a big thing with the death doulas. Mm -hmm. Um, As you say, not not everyone is, is emotionally able to do it but coming back to grief having talked to a lot of people and read and read stuff a lot of people who can't get over death of a loved one is because they weren't able to be there so there is shame and guilt commingling with grief grief is clean grief is healthy grief is very pure and it's absolutely appropriate. When it becomes muddied with shame and guilt, mm. that's when it's toxic, and that's when it can really, uh, you, you can never slough it, you can never get rid of it. To try and find out how we can make allowances as a society to let people be able to be a carer for their loved ones. Um, Of course, the difficulty is we don't know how long someone's going to be dying for. When they get into the last bits, it's very clear. It's just like childbirth. Catherine Mannix has said she's witnessed 12,000, 15,000 deaths. It's very clear. It's like the cervix. How big's the cervix? Right, you're going to start, you know, your waters are broken. There's there's a a timescale now that we're knitted into. So it's exactly the same with death. When you start to, okay, that's happened. So that means that we're going to come here now. We're now at this point, it won't be very long now. 
Uh, but getting to that, I suppose, this, this starter pistol going And off. if we talk about it, so if people are open to talk yeah. about it, yeah. families, you know, then then we can explain what to expect yeah. and what's probably or likely to be yeah. in store. But I was, I was talking to a mate, oh, just a couple of days ago. Oh, it was horrible, it was horrible, it was horrible. I was with Granny or whoever it was. And they were finding it so hard to breathe and they were gurgling and I just wanted to help and do something and say, what? This is the most natural calm. Mm. They're so relaxed, the swallowing mechanism's gone. And it's, I can't remember what the breathing's called, but it's not something to get exercised about. It's just this moment that you know where we are now. And and this will happen for a while, and then... It just it, doesn't sound very nice. It just doesn't sound very nice. But if you know what it means, yes. and because you haven't had those conversations, mm-hmm. you bring your hysteria to play and go, they can't breathe, they're, they're, they're drowning, they're suffocating. Oh. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. They are so relaxed. Mm-hmm. They're so relaxed. That's what this means. And it means that we're not long now till you won't hear that quite soon coming back to thinking about our own mortality what will your legacy be I'm the wrong person to ask really really yeah I think so I don't know um, I don't think I will, is legacy important is it uh, our kids are our legacy I hope they won't stuff things up quite as badly as we have um Oh, it doesn't matter, you're not here. Yeah, honestly, honestly. I remember early, early, early on, when I was still quite young, and uh, both my parents were architects, and I thought, like, I want to be an architect, so there's something left behind when I die. Oh, shut up. There's too many things left behind. Yeah, is why I said, all the stuff I've made, please set fire to with me on top. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't, we don't need a legacy, really. Just hope that in one's actions, in one's life, hopefully made a bit of a positive difference. That's all. That's all. I want a statue and a plaque. There's a wonderful statue. I don't know who it is. Uh, In London, just in a little park north of the Thames, of this uh, very sort of fusty Victorian gentleman bust. He's on a big stone pedestal. And there's a statue of this woman thrown herself at the pedestal, weeping and sobbing. And I want something like that for me, <laughs> definitely, definitely. But more than one woman, obviously. You could carve it yourself. I before. could, but then I'd have to burn it, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh yeah, be on the pyre. Yeah. Greg Wise, thank you thank so you. much. That was lovely. Yeah, it's been great to meet you. Wonderful. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. Join us next time when we'll be talking to radio broadcaster 
Janice Long. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.